You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is that time of the, uh, the each month where we get to take a look at the Lutheran Witness searching the scriptures. We'll do that in just a moment with the managing editor of the Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Roy Askins. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us this morning, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of the Lutheran Witness, to discuss searching the scriptures in the April issue. Pastor Askins, thanks for joining us on the Coffee Hour. Thank you, Andy and Sarah. It's great to be here again. We are continuing uh, the theme of uh, the Creed. Is that right in our study today? That is correct. We are continuing to dive into the Creed and uh, where all of these things that we confess every Sunday and that we have to memorize as catechumens (laughs) Where did all this crazy stuff come from? And it's all in the scriptures. So that's what we're diving into again today. Crazy stuff. <laughs> what a way to categorize it. All right, let's dig in. Let's take a look um, at the uh, the first question here. And and for folks who are following along in the April issue, this is what, near the back? What's the page? I don't This is it. actually page, oh, I was just looking at this too. 25, 25. 25, page 25 in the April issue. All right, so first question, um, read Malachi 3, verse 7. And James 1, verse 17, suffering means that something has power over you to change you. If God cannot change, then can he suffer? And then we have some more text to look into. Let's 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 take a look at the first half. Yeah. Of the so, so, so Malachi we're, 3, 7. Yes. We're getting into this like really deep theological philosophical debate here. Can God suffer, right? I mean, this is really what's what's fascinating because what do we confess in the creed? This portion of the creed that we're studying today is suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And yet the very idea of God suffering is, is not possible. God cannot suffer. So let's dive into this and see what this, this means. First off, I have to, to confess an editing mistake here. Uh, oh. I know. Ah! <laughs> uh, it should actually be Malachi 3 verse 6, not 3 oh, no. verse 7. So for those of you who are looking at 3 verse 7 and wondering, what is wrong with this crazy editor? He screwed up. So it's actually Malachi 3 verse 6. Uh, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So that's the passage we're we're delving into here and talking about uh, can God change? Now, of course, it says really here, very clearly here, um, I I do not change. God, this is what telling the people, the children of Jacob, because what's happened is at this passage in Malachi, God is just exasperated and tired, and he's done with the children of Israel. Um, they have done all sorts of wicked things before him, uh, and and yet he's saying, I don't change, therefore you aren't consumed. In other words, I still keep my promises. You, O children of Israel, you're picking a new God every week, it seems. Every month, you're on a new mountain where worshiping some other false god, but I don't change, and my promises to you do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed for your sin, right? You are not going to be destroyed because I don't change. Well, what does this mean for God to to not uh, change uh, even beyond this? Well, it has uh, some under, uh, reflects or this um, affects our understanding of whether or not God can suffer. If you suffer, 
it means something has power over you to change you, right? Or uh, it might mean that you're 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 subject to the changing tides of emotions or influences around the world. Uh, suffering means that something has power over you to change you and to cause you pain, and that just cannot happen with God, right? He cannot change. He does not change. Uh, we see something similar in James chapter one verses uh, eighteen through. Uh, 17 through 18, where God says, um, or where James writes, uh, God through James writes, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, uh, this is totally, God is totally consistent. He never changes. Uh, there isn't even a variation in shadow. You know, you look at a, at, at a well done picture oftentimes, and you'll see the shadow and this variation of change in color in the shadow. Or, or I know artists talk about there's actually like five different shades or shadows uh, and the shadow will change over time. God, there is no variation with the father of lights. He is pure light. There is no change in him. And therefore also uh, he cannot suffer. And yet, what do we confess in the creed? We confess <clears throat> that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Well, what does this mean? I think that gets us to the next part of this first question. I should really break these up into multiple questions, shouldn't I, Andy, rather than just packing them all into one question. <laughs> All right. So, uh, was, was I was I clear there? Was there? Did you have any questions on that that bit? I, I'm ready to. Sarah, did you have any questions? I'm ready to to move on. No, I was going to say we should move on to the rest of that question. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> so the rest of that question is is mostly what Bible verses you have: Mark ten forty five, Galatians three thirteen, and Hebrews two fourteen. In Christ Jesus, did God suffer? If so, why? What does this tell you about Jesus? See also John one fourteen. So, what's in all of those verses? More Bible passages. I always figure more Bible passages are better, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think I say this every time, but I give as many Bible passages as possible so the pastors have a lot to talk about in this Bible study here. Okay, so Mark chapter 10, verse 48. For the for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is uh, Jesus uh, talking to the disciples after James and John have come up to him and have said, uh, you know, uh, teacher, we want you to do whatever you ask, whatever we ask of you, which is kind of a bold question to ask Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, fine, what are you asking? And he says, well, we want one of, one of us to sit at your right hand or one to sit at your left hand in glory. So they're thinking Jesus is going to come with, with armies and we're going to you know, stir up the Jewish people. We're going to kick the Romans out and Jesus is going to reign like king in Jerusalem. And when that happens, we want to sit on your right and your left hand. And, uh, and then Jesus teaches them uh, about what he comes to do, that he actually comes to suffer and die. And that in his kingdom... Uh, the it is not like the Gentile lords who lorded over their people, but in fact, whoever is great among you should be least. And so then he talks about his role as the son of man and the son of God who comes not to reign over creation as a as a an earthly lord, but in fact to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That is to offer his life uh, on behalf of those who, uh, uh, on behalf of all of sinful humanity, right? And this ransom language is used all throughout the Old Testament uh, with reference to ransoming back family members who are in slavery or ransoming back family property that has been sold uh, in, in poverty. Um, all of this ransom language is wrapped up here in Jesus Christ, who is the ransom, offers his life as this ransom for, for, uh, for humanity. And he can only do this 
as one who is both God and man. This is the the critical thing here, and how we can come to start understanding Jesus or God's suffering is that this only occurs as Jesus is uh, both God and man. He can only suffer. Uh, because he is also man. So this uh, then brings us to the second passage, which is Genesis, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter three, verse verses um, thirteen and fourteen, where Paul writes, "Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree.' So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith." Once again, Jesus uh, suffering the curse, enduring the curse, being under the curse. Uh, as a consequence of his humanity, uh, now he can be hung on a tree. He can suffer and die on a tree. Uh, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is, to you and me. And then finally, uh, we have here also the passage from Hebrews chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that is Jesus likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Once again, it is because he partakes of the same flesh and blood that you and I have, right? He is he is fully God. He is fully man. These two uh, are united in this one person of Jesus Christ. Because he partakes of this humanity, now he can also suffer. In fact, he comes, you know, we were talking about how uh, the idea of suffering means that someone has power over you. This is what happens when he suffers on the cross. Of course, he gives his life willingly. He he comes and gives his life for the people. But this means that the very sinners for whom he was dying are the ones that hang him on the tree to crucify him and kill him. Right. So this is this is how God uh, in Christ suffers uh, for the sake of us sinful humanity that we might have life. Indeed, we didn't get to John one fourteen, but. Uh, you're, you know, ask your pastor. He can d- give you more there also. <laughs> the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, I know. <laughs> I, I see what you did. You made fewer questions so that we could try to get through them in the amount of time, but then you just packed them all in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not working. It's not working. <laughs> oh, shoot. Oh, the second question. Matthew, uh, read Matthew 27, verses 1 to 2 and 11 to 26. John 18, 28 to 40. Who was Pontius Pilate? And what was his role in Jesus' crucifixion? Why is it important to mention Pontius Pilate, a secular governor in the basic Christian statement of faith, the Apostles' Creed? All right. I mean, so, I've always found that a bit fascinating, right? Like in mm-hmm. our creed that we confess, we talk about Pontius Pilate of all people, right? Like yeah. the the wicked governor that was actually, you know, as, as you, you look into his his history and background, was really kind of a horrible person. To the, to the Jews. And yet we include his name in the very confession of faith of, of who we are and what we believe. It's really fascinating. So let's dive into that and, and, uh, and ask why. So uh, Matthew 27 verses 1 through 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So our first clue, uh, Pilate is the excuse me, the governor of Judea at the time. And then Jesus uh, stands before Pilate. Now, I have to say, I didn't actually plan this out this way, but this actually happens to work really well with last week and being Holy Week. All of these things seem to tie together really well. (laughs) Uh, So all of you should be familiar with this passage, having attended um, uh, Good Friday services and heard the the passion account of Jesus. Uh, here we have the account of Jesus before Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, "This is Pilate, Pilate the governor. Are you the King of the Jews?" Jesus said, "You are said so." 
But when he, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? But again, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. And the rest of you know the, the story, how the story goes. Um, Pilate's wife tells him to have nothing to do with Jesus because she suffered greatly because of him in a dream. Uh, Pilate is... Uh, caught between both trying to please his Roman overlords, uh, those who have authority over him in the Roman government, as well as the people, right? The people want Jesus crucified, but he doesn't want a rebellion. Uh, but at the same time, it's pretty clear from the context that this man is, uh, this that Jesus is innocent and that the, the Pharisees have given him up because they were jealous over him. So this is this is uh, the, the context. Eventually, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. He just gives up on on freeing Jesus despite his being innocent, and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. So this this is the figure of, of Pilate. Now, Pilate is, as I mentioned, an interesting figure. Um, if you look at some other uh, extra-biblical accounts, you get a, a picture of Pilate that's pretty rough, actually. Um, he offended the Jews, for instance, when he first came, became uh, governor of Judea, he actually offended the Jews by bringing up, uh, putting Roman standards, like with images of the Roman uh, emperor in Jerusalem. No other governor had done this, right? So he does this. Of course, the Jews, you know, go out in an uproar, get angry. He takes money out of the sacred treasury, the temple treasury, to build aqueducts uh, for the people. So he's like taking church money and using it for non-church purposes and, and a whole bunch of other things like this. Uh, Luke 13 actually also shows, records Pilate uh, that Pilate killed some Galileans while they were offering sacrifices, thus mixing their blood with the sacrifices they offered. Uh, so really kind of a, uh, you don't get so much of this picture in in, in the um, passion accounts, but if, as you look at his life, he was really kind of a, a rough guy on the people of, of Israel at the time. Um, yes, go ahead. Were you going to say something there? Um, anything else about Pontius Pilate before we... Uh, oh, actually, before I move to question three, I do want to say one last thing. And and why do we include him? And I think this is an important thing to mention. We include Pilate in the creed because this is a historical account, right? That we are actually capable of investigating these events of Jesus' life. And this actually grounds our confession and our belief in real historical time. This is not some figment of our imagination that we've created and it's just imaginary. But you can actually look at the historical timeline, find Pilate, and, and investigate these claims. And this is a way of saying, of pegging Jesus to this historical reality, that this actually happened and we believe that these events really took place. Sorry, that, that wraps up question two there. We have more to discuss, more to study in searching the scriptures in the April issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. And we'll do that in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. 
We are searching the scriptures in the April issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. He's managing editor of The Lutheran Witness. All right, Pastor, are we ready to go on to question three? Yes, we are ready. All right. So skim the passion accounts in Matthew 27 and John 18 to 19. What did Jesus suffer from uh, an earthly perspective? So once again, this is why this is actually um, fortuitous that this all worked out in this timing, because many of you should be familiar with then these passion accounts on what Jesus suffered uh, in terms of the physical torments. Um, as you heard on Good Friday, he was mocked, he was spit upon, ridiculed um, as he stands before uh, the, the high priest, he's actually struck physically. Um, when he's with the Roman guards, uh, you know, they, they whip or flog him, they scourge him. Uh, if you want to see a vivid portrayal of this, of course, the Passion of the Christ the, from, I don't know, is that a decade ago now, had oh, wow. a portrayal of this? Uh, I think so, wasn't it? Or is it a decade and a half? It was like 2010, I think. Half, yeah. Oh, oh, my goodness. I'm getting old. Um <laughs> But these, these, the scourge was a was a whip that had these cords, and often in the cords they would weave metal fragments uh, so that it would really kind of whip and tear the flesh. So, uh, of course, the crown of thorns, and then the physical crucifixion. All of these were elements of of the physical uh, torture he endured. Um, President Harrison did an excellent job. I believe it was either Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday. Uh, talking about the the torments that Jesus endured, and I would encourage people to go back and and listen to this. Uh, but the the physical torment uh, finally wraps up in basically a death by asphyxiation. Uh, incredible pain as you try to pull up for breath. You know you're hung from a cross trying to pull up from breath, uh, and eventually die. Uh, die of this crucifixion, this extreme physical pain. So this is the the physical side of the suffering he endured. Uh, but there is also another side to this, and that gets us into the second question here. Yeah, the second part of that question is read Matthew twenty-seven forty-five through fifty-four. What did Jesus suffer from a spiritual or heavenly perspective? Sure. So let's read that passage now. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at, ran, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then as you continue through the passage, the temple curtain is torn, the tombs are opened. And uh, upon seeing this, this is actually the great confession of the book of Matthew, one of the great confessions. The centurion, who's not a Jew, right? This is a Roman. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God, right? So the Gentiles, even upon seeing his death, confess that he was the son of God. But this uh, this first passage, uh, first bit, forty five to fifty, uh, portray for us the the uh, the spiritual suffering that Jesus endures. And to really get to this, I actually want to read a quote from Martin Luther. Um, this is actually quoted in Pieper's Dogmatics, uh, but it's a quote from Luther. It's fantastic. Here's what Luther says: This matter no man can so well depict in words as it is stated here in frank, terse, and plain words. It does not treat of Christ's bodily suffering, which is also great and heavy, but of his deep spiritual suffering, which he felt in his soul and which far surpassed all bodily suffering. In what this consisted, no man on earth can understand, nor has any man the vocabulary adequately to describe and depict it. For to be forsaken of God is much worse than death. And Christ has truly been forsaken by God, not in such a way that the deity was separated from the humanity, 
but that the deity withdrew into itself and hid itself. So the righteous and innocent man had to tremble and fear like a poor condemned sinner and in his tender innocent heart had to feel God's wrath and judgment over sin, taste for us eternal death and damnation, and in short, suffer all that a condemned sinner has deserved and must suffer eternally. He had to quench and put out in his soul the extreme agony that is called being forsaken of God and the devil's fiery darts, hell's fire and terror, and all that we had deserved by our sins. By this, heaven, eternal life, and blessedness has been purchased for us. That's the quote from Luther. And he really, really hammers this, that that what Christ endures is all the torments of hell. That, that his suffering of hell actually doesn't come in the next section. We're going to talk about you know, his descent into hell. That's actually not his suffering. That's his proclamation and glory. The suffering of hell is this uh, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the true suffering and torment uh, of hell. Question number four. Let's go. Read John 19, verses 31 to 37, and Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. Why is it so important to the gospel writers to point out that Jesus is dead? So let's actually, we're just going to dive into, let's start with the John passage. Uh, Since it was the day of preparation, this is John 19, verse 31. And so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place to fulfill the scriptures, or that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So, uh, and we have a similar note uh, also in in Matthew chapter uh, 27, uh, where Jesus is is actually dead. And, and the reason this is important is... Um, Throughout the history of the church, there have been those who have rejected this claim and denied this claim that Jesus was actually dead, right? Uh, there are many people who have said, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just swooned from the loss of blood. And when they took him down, he the, the cold of the tomb revived him and then he he left. Or, you know, uh, some other uh, a claim that the disciples, you know, stole the body or whatever it might be. The point is he actually has to be dead. For the sake of uh, for the sake of the resurrection, right? If he's not dead, then what's the value of the resurrection? There isn't one, right? Uh, and that's kind of the point here. Um, we also see later on. Uh, this is in the Matthew twenty seven passage. After he has died, the Pharisees actually understood what Jesus was claiming about himself and his resurrection, upcoming resurrection, uh, all throughout his teaching. It's really interesting. The disciples didn't get it, but the Pharisees did because they go to Pilate and they said. Pilate, we remembered that imposter, that is, they were talking about Jesus, said that while he was alive, after three days, I will rise. So let's make sure we secure this tomb, right? Well, so the, the, the point being, they wanted to make sure that he was dead and stayed dead so that there wasn't any uh, false narratives going on, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and that's kind of the, the idea here, that, that Jesus actually was truly dead. Uh, and this wasn't some, some myth that the disciples made up, which, of course, a bunch of people have claimed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So then the rest of that question is, uh, read 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve to 28. According to St. Paul, what does it mean for us who have yet to follow Jesus into earthly death? 
Now, if Christ has been proclaimed as raised from the dead, St. Paul declares here in 1 Corinthians 15, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ will have perished. If in Christ we have hope and this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So that's St. Paul talking about the importance of the resurrection of the dead. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then guess what? We don't have any hope either. We are still in our sins. Uh, There is... Uh, and those who have fallen asleep before us, those who have died in the faith before us, have no hope either, right? Uh, we hang our hat on this resurrection because through baptism, we are connected to the same resurrection. We also have the hope that even uh, though we die today, we will be raised on the last day with him and have eternal life with him. Uh, and this is what, what it means for Christ to be the first fruits of the dead, right? That he has been raised from the dead. And as the first fruits, he will also, and as those who are connected to him, he will also raise us uh, to life again as well. Question number five. We'll try. We'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Where was Jesus buried? Let's take a look at Matthew 27, verses 57 to 66. So uh, this uh, real quick and easy answer, Matthew 27, 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph as a disciple of Jesus. He goes to Pilate, asks for the body, and then he puts Jesus in his own new tomb, which had been cut in the rock. So he has a tomb. He lays Jesus uh, in this tomb. Uh, and that's where Jesus is is, uh, is buried. And then how do we wrap that up? First uh, Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 49. How does Jesus' burial give hope to us who grieve for our loved ones who have died in the faith? This is, uh, I don't know that we have time to read this entire passage, but mm-hmm. I encourage you all to do this. Read all of this First uh, Corinthians. And in fact, just read all of First Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, just a wonderful passage and wonderful comfort, uh, resurrection comfort uh, for those uh, who cling to Jesus Christ. I'm going to focus on uh, kind of verse 45 and following. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, so he's contrasting here Adam, the one who brought death into the world as a consequence of his sin, and Jesus who brings life as a consequence of his suffering and death for our sins, right? We have borne the image of the man of dust. We are dust. The dust we shall return. So also we will bear the image of the man of heaven through whom we have life. I actually did it. That wraps it up. Uh, Very good. Very good. Good study, Pastor. Uh, Where can our listeners find the Lutheran Witness and uh, Searching the Scriptures that comes out each month? Sure. So the Luther Witness, you can uh, read about some of the stuff we have on the Luther Witness website, witness.lcms.org. Uh, if you want to subscribe, visit cph.org slash witness. They have all the subscription information there. Uh, the Searching the Scriptures, all of that is included in every issue of the Luther Witness. So um, make sure you subscribe so you can actually get a copy for yourself. Very good. The Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for the Lutheran Witness. Thanks for searching the scriptures with us this month. Thank you for having me. I look forward to hearing or talking to you guys again next week, <laughs> next month. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. <laughs>
The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere.